Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is Neil McMillan, inviting you to join me for Pulse of Politics. I'll be bringing you 30 minutes of interviews, conversation and commentary on issues that matter. That's Pulse of Politics. Cabinet ministers have told us this past week that the pandemic is a one in 100 years event which, if correct, would rank it with the Great Depression of the 1930s. Meaningful comparison with the 30s is obviously not possible because the full effects of the nation's shutdown are still emerging. But the repercussions are both real and hurting. And to get a perspective on the situation, we're joined this week by one of New Zealand's most experienced political watchers, former MP, <laughs> Cabinet Minister and Party Leader, the Honourable Peter Dunn. Uh, Peter's on the phone from Wellington, and we're most grateful he's joined us. So welcome, Peter, very much. Thank you, Neil. Nice to be with you. Peter, the impact of coronavirus has intruded into every aspect of our lives and it comes under multiple headings such as health, economic, social and political. So when, can we begin by looking at these separately and then at the collective or cumulative effect? And uh, Firstly, the health aspect and the government's response, would an earlier response have lessened the need for such a severe lockdown, I wonder? I wonder about that sometimes. I think overall the response has been very good, but there was a little tardiness initially about closing the border. And since most of the cases that have emerged in New Zealand appear to have been brought about by some form of international travel, it's arguable that an earlier move on the borders might have spared some of the rest of us the pain and hardship we've endured in recent weeks. But look, 92% of New Zealanders think the government's done a good job on this. It's a bit uh, churlish to try and be critical, but I think we were a little slow initially to move on the border front. Mm. You've been involved with the health portfolio. How adequate or inadequate, for that matter, were our health services to cope with the outbreak? Well, just before the change of government at the last election, a pandemic action plan was prepared and released by the Ministry of Health to make sure that New Zealand was well prepared in the event of a significant pandemic occurring. I'm not sure what work has been done in the intervening three years on giving life to that plan, but it does appear on the face of it that we were a little bit taken by surprise by the the depth of the uh, pandemic and the speed with which it was spreading. And I'm not sure that our preparations were all that they could have been. Now, I know that officials were sort of working on this from the middle of January, but I think there's a a legitimate question about were we ready, had they quite got their heads around what a significant pandemic might mean and what our responses should be. And I suspect the answer is they hadn't. Mm. And with the Director-General of Health having such a critical role, did the Prime Minister need day-to-day involvement in this well, that's a very arguable point, I think. I mean, what, what, what happened was once we declared the states of emergency under both the Health Act and the uh, Civil Defence and Emergency Manage- Management Act, the effective power in this shifted from the government to the Director General of Health, uh, supported by the Commissioner of Police and the Director of um, Emergency Management. 
uh, had the Director-General of Health been on such a mind to, he could have virtually run this show uh, single-handedly. I think he is not that type of personality. He chose to involve the Prime Minister, so we had this rather uh, long-standing double act between the two of them. But actually, the power resided with the Director-General of Health so long as the state of emergency kept being renewed. And it was interesting that the Prime Minister kept saying, and still says really, that the key decisions about whether we move from Level 2 to Level 1, as they were from Level 4 to Level 3, will be made on the recommendation of the Director-General of Health. So not the government deciding, but a public servant. Now, you may say that's entirely appropriate. He's a very experienced and capable administrator and a public health specialist in his own right. Uh, But I think there is a point of principle here that that effectively power was surrendered uh, to the bureaucrats. And I think that uh, we were lucky in many senses that they didn't choose to uh, exercise it to the fullest extent possible. I thought early on there was a hint that they might when the Commissioner of Police at the time was sort of swaggering in the first couple of days. But I now think that may have had much more to do with the fact that he knew what's become subsequently clear, and that was they had no legal authority to do anything. If there were to have been political involvement at that time, should it have been the Minister of Health himself? It should have been the Minister of Health funding, not the Director-General. And in fact, I think right the way through, the Director-General should have been reporting to the Minister of Health, who should have been the one fronting the press conferences alongside the Prime Minister. I think to take any political heat out of the matter, it would have been helpful to have formed some sort of, um, not so much a coalition of national unity, but some sort of combined approach to uh, COVID-19 involving the government and the opposition. Uh, what, what happened, of course, was we had that emergency uh, prepare, or that, that um, emergency select committee, epidemic response committee under Simon Bridges, which could really only review things after the event, not be involved in the decision-making process. I think a better move would have been to have involved the opposition from the beginning in the decision-making process so that you didn't have the political sort of um, toing and froing that we've seen in recent days. And when the Minister of Health breached the emergency regulations, should the Prime Minister have relieved him of the portfolio? I think from a credibility point of view, yes. I can understand her point that she's sort of up to her neck and the rest of the coronavirus issue to be too busy to worry about the Minister of Health. But I think it was a very unfortunate look to have a Minister of Health who was clearly um, both at a distance, being, being physically separate in Dunedin, and in breach of the rules that he was supposed to be enforcing. It didn't do much for the credibility of the government's response. And I think in retrospect, it would have been more prudent for the Prime Minister to have acted rather than to just have sort of left him dangling on the side. I mean, he's still dangling on the side. We don't know whether he's going to be dismissed at some point before the election or whether he's just going to drift on in that sort of suspended animation until election time and not be reappointed to the Cabinet if they're successful afterwards. It's a pretty unfortunate situation, and I think it, it came at a time when New Zealanders were still unsure about what was involved and, and just what the sacrifices they would be called upon to make were, and it just was not a good look all round. Mm-hmm. Peter, you've touched on the work of the Pandemic Response Committee. It raises the question, should Parliament itself have been closed down for the duration should it have been defined as an essential service? I mean, after I all, the, the media was. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Parliament should have been able to continue. And the argument was that there was going to be difficulty because of the close proximity of MPs and the debating chamber and all that sort of stuff. I think that's nonsense. With, with, the, with the technology we've got today, uh, video conferencing, Zoom, uh, Skype, all those sorts of things, it would have been possible to form very quickly a way in which Parliament would continue to operate. I think the real reason Parliament was suspended wasn't 
as they claimed the logistics. But essentially, the decision had been made early on from a conflict management point of view that a tight little group of ministers would run the, the, the show, would make the key decisions, uh, because they would need to act quickly uh, to a changing situation, and that having to go through Parliament would simply be too time-consuming. You can debate that all you like. I'm there on the side of saying, in a parliamentary democracy, the Parliament should be paramount. Others will have the view that it was, a, it was a luxury we couldn't afford. It's not a view I hold. Let's look at the powers that have been given to the police or to other so-called designated authorised persons to enforce the emergency orders. Are these excessive, and do they pose a serious threat to civil liberties? I think they're excessive. Uh, I think that they, there has been an uncertainty about them right from the beginning, uh, hence the solicitor, the uh, Attorney-General's refusal to release the advice received from the Solicitor-General during the earlier stages of the lockdown. The panic is, is actually often, in my mind, not the rules themselves, but the way in which they're enforced. Now, I've got a very high regard for the senior management of the police in New Zealand. I think it's a remarkably capable organisation. But I have a much lesser regard when you get down to the sort of the local level and the individual station. And the problem is this. The police have what's called constabulary independence. So that if the, if the police officer in um, Belclutha, say, the police sergeant there makes a decision, it's made purely independently and purely according to local conditions. Uh, it's not actually something that's sort of subject to an overarching control from head office. And I can, could have seen and real dangers of saying to the police, who are not skilled in matters of pandemic management, after all, uh, you know, you exercise your constabulary independency. I think you'd have had all sorts of dangerous situations. I think it's to the police credit that they didn't go overboard, uh, that there were some pretty rocky bits at the beginning, but overall I thought they behaved remarkably well to, and they retained the public respect. The problem is, as I say, the law now as passed by Parliament a week or so ago. It gives them the power to uh, enter properties virtually at will. And uh, I think there's a potential damage there that, that we've got to keep an eye on, particularly, as we now know, we've got very few cases and hardly any, in fact, uh, new cases in New Zealand occur. And you may well ask, what, what are the powers necessary for? There has been criticism of, of uh, the, the way the, power, the, the police have exercised powers at ground level uh, uh, they've prosecuted people for flaunting the restrictions, and yet they've seemingly turned a blind eye to people who set up illegal roadblocks. And in the last few days, it's been disclosed that uh, there were numbers clearly exceeded at a gang tangy in Dunedin. Yeah, I think this is a problem I was alluding to in terms of that local independence and autonomy for the police. You do get some inconsistencies emerging between different police districts and different police stations even. And I think it's to the police's, um, I guess, relief in a way, but none of the prosecutions that they uh, have made have come to court yet, or I think one or two may have. But, but we've, the real danger here is, of course, you get a judge that simply says, this is a lot of nonsense and I'm throwing the case out insufficiently or whatever, and then the whole thing falls over. The credibility of the whole operation is damaged by the sort of uh, excesses of the few. And I, I thought that was a very real risk all along, particularly when it became clear that the Solicitor General had raised concerns early on, and even the police were raising concerns about whether they could enforce uh, the, the situation that was thrust upon them. So I think all round, very lucky that some big risks were 
very narrowly, narrowly avoided coming to fruition. Mm. The Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters, reckons we should now be at level one. Has the government been overly cautious in reverting to lower levels of restriction? I think that's a point we won't know the answer to for some time yet. Uh, on the face of it, you say, yes, we've got, as we speak, I think one active case in the country. Uh, and we've we've got large numbers. I think 15 of the 20 district health boards have gone more than uh, two or three weeks without any case being notified. So you could say, why are we still at level two? The risk, as we're seeing from other countries, though, is that there is a second wave, potentially, and we don't want to be caught napping on that. Now, the likelihood of that in New Zealand, well, a little difficult to tell since our borders have been closed and since we have no uh, significant input of people to bring that second wave. But I suspect if we did have it occur, there'd be a public outcry saying, why weren't we ready for it? So I'm comfortable taking a carefully staged approach to this. But I do think there's going to be a point where the government is going to need to take back more direct political control. I don't mean in partisan sense, but I don't think you can go on forever saying we're, we're relying on the Director General of Health to tell us what to do here because I think the Director General of Health will take an extreme health view uh, right to the bitter end and uh, there's got to be a balance between that and the economy which as you know has just fallen off the cliff. Listeners, we're speaking with the Honourable Peter Dunn. Peter, let's turn to the economic consequences of the lockdown and firstly the government's response. Has it in effect mortgaged the future of the next two generations as some have claimed? I think it has. Uh, you may then say, well, what was the alternative? I mean, if you go back to the last two major crises we faced of this type, none of which were at the scale of um, COVID-19, was the Asian um, economic crisis followed by the, the, the GFC in, uh, about 10 years later. In the first case, the then national government adopted scorchers as a response, and that was a disaster. In the second case, the key government adopted the approach of trying to keep people in employment and cushion the impact as much as possible, and that was far more successful. I think this government's moved into that path in terms of its response. The problem I think it faces is that it doesn't quite know, A, how long it's going to be in this state, so it's doing a massive bailout of people in terms of job subsidies and all of those sorts of things. But there's no clear strategy that, that I can see about how you restructure the economy uh, as a consequence, uh, the fact that everyone keeps saying things aren't going to be the same, or well, what's the, what's the economic strategy uh, moving forward? And it seems to me at the moment, um, for good reason perhaps, we're arguing much more, or the government's approach is much more focused around uh, keeping people afloat. So you've got all these subsidies and uh, um, part-time arrangements that work for the next few weeks. But I'm not sure what the plan is after that. And you know, this thing's going to have a much longer impact than just the next few weeks. And uh, there'll be people who, who probably lost their jobs who may never work again. So what are the impacts? What's the transformation? What's the strategy moving forward? It's not clear at this stage. We're talking tens of billions of dollars. And as a former revenue minister, could greater use have been made of reserve bank credit, which has been advocated by the Social Credit Party? And I think the, the governor of the Reserve Bank is making a similar sort of point in the last uh, 24 hours as well. Um, it's interesting. A lot of people have said, you know, we, we're borrowing something like uh, 50, our debt-to-GDP ratio will rise to something like 53% over the next few years as a result of this, up from about 19% at the moment, horrifically high, etc. In fact, if you look at Britain at the moment, before coronavirus, their 
its GDP ratio was about 95%. Australia's already at 50-something percent before they start. The Germans are at about 75. So in comparative international terms, you know, we've got plenty of room to move. I think the question is more one of the strategy we adopt to move there. We can afford to increase our debt a little bit. Um, I was on a program recently with Dr. Don Brash, the former Reserve Bank governor, who was saying that in terms of sources of finance, the New Zealand banks are flush with cash at present and are looking for somewhere to offload it. So the Reserve Bank's bond program is very attractive to them. So he didn't feel we were too exposed internationally as a result of this increased borrowing, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. But I think the bigger question is, it's all very well doing it all. What's the point of it? And are we using that money most effectively? Your perspective on the effects this is having on business, particularly tourism and significantly small business? It's huge. Uh, Even businesses that are getting up and running again aren't getting up and running again as they once were. So they might be up and running, but with one or two fewer staff. In the tourism sector, I think the consequences are extraordinary because you're not going to have the big input of 4 million overseas tourists a year. You've You've now got 5 million potential New Zealand tourists as well. Uh, and the demands of both are quite different. You know, the overseas tourist wants to come and see some big things. The New Zealand tourist wants something uh, a little bit more local and a little bit closer to home. So I think there's going to have to be a massive restructuring within the tourism sector in terms of what the product that they, offering, they are offering looks like in the future. And that's going to come with quite a, I think, a big sort of coming out of people and businesses in that sector. It's going to be huge. But on the other hand, um, I think we can be a wee bit uh, over-reliant on on the overseas visitor. I was told a couple of years ago that people who come to New Zealand on cruises, for example, don't actually spend that much money on shore here. Their their, their cruise fares and their prepaid tour packages are a big spend. And what they spend once they get here is not all that much. So I think we've got to be careful about saying all our overseas tourists are certainly a big contributor but we at the same time need to now be redesigning our domestic tourism package to suit the needs of local people, and I think that could be difficult. Mm. And the social fallout from the lockdown, we've got businesses closing down, people losing jobs, impacts on family relationships. What worries you most there? All of those things. I think that uh, we don't know uh, how families are impacted. We don't know how children are impacted by the talk around the family dinner table of the prospect of jobs not being there or the fears that they have. We have some interesting statistics from the Commission for Financial Capability uh, that show that at the beginning of May, so that's now nearly a month ago, uh, 34% of people were already, of households rather, were already in difficulty. Another 40% were expecting to be in difficulty and something like 1 in 10 had defaulted on a rent or a mortgage payment. So that's the situation a few weeks ago. It can only have got worse subsequent to that. And I think that the consequences of, uh, as I say, the stresses on relationships and households as a result of that and the impact on the children who won't be insensitive to what's going on. I know something's unusual going on and that it's not quite as it should be. It's going to be incalculable and take um, many, many years to resolve. Then you've got the disruption to education that we've seen with the closure of schools and tertiary institutions. People won't get their qualifications or their um, schooling in quite the way they once expected. That's going to have a long-term implication as well. Too soon to tell, but I think these are going to be big ticking time bombs for us to keep an eye on.
And the political fallout, well, not surprisingly, a surge in popularity for Jacinda Ardern and Labour, but a dramatic change in the leadership of the National Party. Did National do the right thing? Well, the, the surge in popularity for the government here parallels the surge in popularity for the governments in Germany, even the Trump administration, certainly in Australia. So I think it's a case of whatever goes up must come down. I wouldn't see that as being a long-term trend. It's shot up very quickly, almost in a, in a vertical line. I think as uh, we start to return to something approaching normality, it will come down very quickly as well. I think the government, the government will be very, very keen to keep that afloat as long as possible, which is why I think they're going to keep talking about uh, the crisis for as long as they can, even if it's long since ceased to be. As for the National Party, I think they got sucked in a little bit. Uh, bear in mind that before uh, coronavirus, they were doing extraordinarily well in the polls and were looking on track to have a good chance of winning the election. Suddenly that's vanished. They, you could say panic and change their leader. But I think what happened during the pandemic crisis was a number of Mr Bridges' responses did raise some pretty severe questions about his sensitivity and suitability in a pressure situation to act. And it now seems clear that the, the anti-forces, if you like, in the, in the National Party have been gathering their troops for some time and just saw this as the appropriate moment to uh, move under the banner of Todd Muller. Whether that turns out to be successful time will tell. I think it may be a bit like Labour back in 1990 when they rolled Geoffrey Palmer to bring in Mike Moore. It was much more about saving seats than having a realistic hope of winning the election. And how do you rate Todd Muller? I've known him for a number of years. I think he's a quiet achiever. I don't think he's had the most brilliant starts in the role, but I think a lot of the gaffes of the last week have been somewhat overemphasised. He's a thinker. I think he's, uh, as he's shown by the way in which this campaign has been organised, he's a pretty clear and clever operative. I wouldn't underestimate him for a moment. I think he's also in the mould, though, uh, more so than Simon Bridges of the traditional National Party leader. I wrote a column earlier this week uh, suggesting that he was more like the 19, sorry, the, the, the 2020s version of the 1970s politician Brian Torboys, very urbane. Uh, well-spoken, well-considered and thought through. Quite a contrast in Torboy's case to the brashness of Muldoon or the more modern brashness of Bridges uh, under the, you know, the last leadership. Uh, whether that strikes a fire with the public, time will tell, but I think it will strike a chord with the National Party. With opinion polls suggesting Labour could govern alone, surely New Zealand First and the Greens would have to be a bit concerned at that. Yes, and I think Labour would be too, because I think... It would be an extraordinary thing were Labour to get the support to govern alone. Whenever that's appeared likely previously, uh, Labour in 2002 and the key government in 2011 and 2014, the primary thing on voters' minds has been to make sure they don't ever govern alone, so you don't get the tyranny of the, of the majority. The problem Labour then has that on current polling, the Greens are marginal to make it and New Zealand First won't make it. So you could end up with a perverse situation assuming Nationals' polling recovers somewhat, where National and Labor are both pretty even-stevens. Labor doesn't have partners, and the consequence of the waste vote means that ACT gets pivoted into a pretty critical position, and that would mean a pretty unstable national lead government. I mean unstable in the sense of a very small majority. So, all to play for. 
And what about David Seymour and the ACT Party? David Seymour seems to be making a lot of impact. Yes, he does. I think they could potentially win two or three seats at the election, which, as I say, if my former scenario paints out, allowing for the wasted vote factor, could be enough to tip the balance. Now, that's a bit of a long-shot call. I'm not making an absolute prediction in that regard, but I'm just simply saying that, to go back to your original point, if I was Labour, and certainly if I were in the Greens or New Zealand First, I'd be extremely worried about the relatively poor showing of those two parties at this stage. Labour would want them both to be up over 5%, and clearly so, to have any comfort about uh, forming the next government. I think what's happening at the moment is a lot of their votes, the Greens and New Zealand First votes, are simply transferring straight to Labour. Somehow it would like to redistribute them back, I think, to be sure of getting a majority after the election. And the re-emergence of John Tamahiri as co-leader of the Maori Party. Is there any, is there any future there? I, it's hard to say, because I think partly that the Maori Party itself seems divided. Tamahiri has a pretty clear uh, anti-Labour perspective. Other leaders of the party who have emerged in the last couple of years seem to be pretty clearly anti-national. So I think they've got to work out who they're prepared to work with after the election, uh, if they're in a position to do so. They've also got to look, in their case, not to winning party votes, but to winning electorate seats. And I think that's going to be very difficult for them. Tamahiri may have the best chance of Tamaki Makoro, but I don't think any of the others uh, are likely. And then if he does win, which I think will still be a long shot, uh, he's got to make sure that the party's polling at least 2 or 3% so he can drag in some others. It's a pretty difficult ask, and I just don't think it's going to succeed. And finally, Peter, the election at this stage, and we know it's a volatile landscape and you've dealt with that, is Jacinda doing a shoe-in to remain Prime Minister, or is Todd Muller a viable prospect? I think it's somewhere between the two. I don't think Jacinda Ardern is a shoe-in. I think it's unlikely that she'll be defeated, though. Muller, I think, will do better than most people expect. It will depend, uh, as I say, on some of these other factors as to whether... Uh, he, he gets over the top. Uh, if he gets over the top, it will be because others have fallen off the perch. Uh, from Ardern's point of view, uh, she's got to make sure... Uh, it's a bit like a yacht in an America's Cup race, you know, just coming up to the final um, the, the final line. Uh, Labour's got a bit of momentum, but there's a bit of an argument going on on the foredeck amongst the crew about uh, which sails they need to be setting. And they're sort of just slowing down a little bit, whereas the Nats might finally have found a favourable breeze, but they're still quite a long way away. So just who can keep the momentum going for the final push in just a few weeks' time will decide the outcome. At the moment, you'd say Labour, but uh, you'd put maybe, I don't know, 10% perhaps chance on National doing it. Peter Dunn, thanks so much. We've always appreciated your assessment of political issues, and it's certainly been valuable this week, so we're very, very grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Always good to talk. Listeners, we've been speaking with the Honourable Peter Dunn, former MP, former Cabinet Minister, both in Labour-led and National-led governments, and always an astute judge of politics. And that's our programme for the week. And this is Neil McMillan closing with a reminder, you can catch Pulse of Politics at the same time every week, on air, online or on podcast. You've been listening to Pulse of Politics, broadcast every Sunday evening at 8 o'clock on Otago Access Radio. If you'd like to hear this program again, you can download a podcast from oar.org.nz.
Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.